welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and today we have with us a very special guest, Deborah Mellon, with an incredibly inspiring story. Thank you, Tom. I'd like to welcome Deborah to the show. She's become a good friend of mine. She's been a very good friend of my wife's for probably over 30 years. They met in Italy many years ago. And we just saw Deborah last week, and she reminded me of a story that I had forgotten about. She is doing some work, which is remarkable, where she is paraplegic. We're going to go into that story in a second. And that happened in Italy many years ago. But she currently is working on a project that I'm going to let her tell you about called The Impossible Dream. And uh, Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Could you tell us a bit about your current project and we'll, we'll work back to it um, towards the end of the show? Sure. Um, Impossible Dream um, is based on a sailboat. She's a 60-foot catamaran that has been um, that was built from the ground up to be wheelchair accessible. Um, she was built by a Paralympic sailor named Mike Brown, who had a skiing accident and then decided to start sailing. He was a Paralympic sailor in 2.4s, and then he commissioned the architect Nick Bailey to build the Impossible Dream, and. The, the premise was it should be a boat that a person in a wheelchair could sail across the ocean single-handedly. And Mike had the boat for 10 years in England. And about five, six years ago, I found out it was for sale. I went across to England, saw the boat, purchased her, brought her back to the United States, and I formed a nonprofit called The Impossible Dream. And what the impossible dream does is our, the main part of our program is we go five months every year and we just completed our fifth summer tour. And our summer tour goes from Miami to the north of Maine. One year we went to Quebec and Nova Scotia with the tall ships. And on that trip, we stopped in approximately 15 ports of call, and we take people with disabilities sailing. Fantastic. The other, the other um, facet of what we do is on those trips and bringing the boat from port to port, we, we invite sailors with disabilities like myself as crew. So wow. when, we get, when we get to each port, we have crew with disabilities. And then many times we can work with rehab hospitals. And many times we take out newly injured patients. Okay. So we take those patients out and they meet our, our seasoned crew, people with disabilities. And it gives them a little bit of light and hope. I don't want to say inspiration because... We don't want it. We're not there to inspire. We think it's our right to be able to um, be on a boat and go sailing. And that ties us into universal design. Right. And the impossible dream is the only boat of its kind built with that idea. It's not an afterthought. Nobody, we didn't add ramps on. We didn't add anything on. She was built from the ground up to be wheelchair accessible. 
and she's the most beautiful catamaran on the water. Fantastic. And it made her, it made her better to be accessible, like universal design can do in everywhere. If you look on the podcast announcement, you'll see the link to her boat. You also see the picture of the boat, which is fantastic. Then you also see a picture of Deborah, which she looks very excellent. They're very, um, she looks great. And the book's, the book's actually been a major part of your own personal healing process, right? Yes. Okay. So what I so, want to do, the first, the first episode part of this podcast, I'd like to talk about your accident, what that was like. Then the second podcast will go into your story of healing and how this boat has helped you so much. Um, I'd like to make one comment. I'm gonna, I've never asked you this question, but I do know that people that are disabled actually really don't, most of them, if not all of them, actually don't consider themselves disabled. They don't like being considered disabled, correct? Right. Well, you know, that is, it's, a, it's about the word. So th there's a movement out there to change the language about disability. Okay. So um, sometimes we say other abled because as in with design, it makes us, it can make us better, not worse. It, it can add to our abilities, not take away. Right. And I feel like um, my paraplegia and the struggle that I went through has added to me. It hasn't taken away. So, the, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of politics around the language of d disability, such as wheelchair bound. We're not wheelchair bound. We're not okay. bound to anything. Right. So that's a whole nother subject. <laughs> well, I think audience will quickly realize why I have Deborah on the show. I mean, so I know you don't want to be inspiring, but you are, like it or not. <laughs> But anyway, she's great. So um, if we don't mind going back to the original part of the story, Babs, who's my wife, knew you before you had the accident. And could you tell us right. what happened? Well, um, yes, I met Babs in Italy. I was living in Italy. I was um, married. My husband was from Italy. And we were, one in the afternoon, we were on the autostrada and a truck driver fell asleep on the road and careened into us. And um, at that time, I had a lap seatbelt on. Okay. And, and um, I, you know, I went through the windshield. The, the seatbelt kept me from flying out of the car, but it also broke my back. And I had many other injuries. So um, my husband saved my life, gave me mouth to mouth. He didn't have his seatbelt on. And Italians are like that. Right. They don't like those constraints. Right. And he was able to, to jump over to a place that was the, where he could survive, which was close to me because I did survive. If he had stayed in his spot, he would not have survived. Okay. And, um, and from there, I was in a coma for a few weeks. And, you know, I woke up. I was on a respirator. And... I was told that I would never walk again. No, this is when you were still, you, this is in Genoa, Italy? In, in Italy, yeah. We were living outside of Florence and we had actually been with his mother and we had dropped her off home and we were going, at that time I was, well, I still am a jewelry designer and I was going to a jewelry show and my husband wanted to drive me because 
at that time in Italy, a lot of funny things were going on on the trains and um, people were getting robbed and they were whatever. And right. so he drove, he drove, he was driving me and we had that, we had our accident. What was that like when you were first told that you were going to be paraplegic and this was permanent? I, you know, it, it's a, that's a very interesting question. I think I knew before anybody told me anything. Somehow, I don't have a memory of waking up and having a shock. Somehow, whether when I was in my coma, I absorbed everything that was going around, I'm not sure. But um, at, at the time, they didn't know it, if I had... Um, any serious brain injuries because my head hit so hard right. and most of my face was broken. So the first thing when I woke up, my father was there and he, I couldn't talk cause I was on a respirator and he was, he asked me my social security number. I know it sounds crazy, but, and I could write and I wrote it down and that was the first thing that happened. And there was, from everybody that was waiting for me to wake up, there was happiness on that part. Right. So I had my, I had my, my head. And, um, and you were flown back to the States for rehab. Is that correct? You did the rehab? Yes. So when they could move me, it was, I was probably in the hospital in Genoa for six weeks. I was, I was never moved out of reanimation. I was always in reanimation. And when they could move me, they flew me to New York, and I went at the time um, to the Rusk Institute. And I was there for um, six to seven months. And during that time, I also had, um, I had surgery at that time in Italy. Um, and then when I was in the Rusk Institute, I also had, I had surgery on my face, reconstructing my face. And then later on, I, um, and that's further in the story, I made it to Miami and I had a few surgeries there on my back. Okay, so you went through a lot. Babs is always really clear about this story, but just before the accident, life was looking pretty good, right? Had she just bought a piece of property and getting rid of We had just, um, we had, so we had just bought a piece of property that we had been looking for for years. My husband was a photographer and we were looking for an old farmhouse with a barn that we could make into a studio. We had already been living in Italy for quite a few years um, in rental properties and we were able to sell our, our loft in New York and we finally were able to purchase our own house. And at that, that day was about three days after we had sh shaken, shook hands and made a deal to buy a house. Wow. In orthopedics, we, it's a little disconcerting being in medicine in general, but particular orthopedics, because accidents are never planned. Otherwise, they wouldn't be accidents. I always was impressed many, many decades ago that life changes in a second. One day you're healthy, the next day you have cancer. One day you're healthy, the next day you have a car accident. In your situation, to go from that much excitement and promise and hope, the future looked fantastic, 
Jellison becoming paraplegic a few days later, that's a, it's a big deal anyway, but it seems like that would make it that even a bigger deal. It, it was, it was tough. And, um, <clears throat> the, the person that we purchased the house from, we, my husband got in touch with him and obviously told him what happened and said, I, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. You know, money had not changed hands yet. And he actually held, held the house for us oh, wow. for nine months until we were able to see a little bit what we were going to do. And we decided to come back to Italy okay. and, we de- and, and we decided to go forward with the house. Right. And make it accessible. And, you know, we were dreaming a little bit, but that that's what we did. We did. We came back to Italy and a year later we purchased the the, the house. And then we started um, working on it a bit, piece by piece. And then, unfortunately, my husband had a heart attack and passed away. How long ago? How long after? That. that was um, less than two years after the accident. And wow. then I was left in a position. There was, you know, the, 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 um, the antiquity of Italy is, you know, it's the edge, it's the, the good and the bad. And there was no way that I could live alone in Italy and be, live in, with any kind of independence whatsoever. So that's when I made the decision to come back to New York City. Quick question. So, okay, you had a major hit. You're back in Italy, getting the house ready to go. So again, hopes were going, hopes were increasing at that yeah, point. Yeah, trying to push it forward, yeah. And, and how were you feeling at that point before your husband passed away? How, how were you adapting to the paralysis? How, how were things going at that point? I, I was hopeful, I think. Um, I was happy to be back in Italy. It, it was difficult. You know, I, I, I had always been a very independent person. And even with my husband in Italy, there wasn't much independence to have. Right. And, um, but it, I was hopeful and I had him and we were both alive and we made it through. So it, it was the very beginning because after being in, in the hospital for so many months, just it, it was the very beginning of a new life and things you things hadn't hadn't gotten all that complicated yet. Well, so I, I was hopeful. When I heard that story about your husband passing away a couple of years later, I just was blown away. I mean, obviously life is tough, but that seems to be well up there as far as the range of tough situations occurring. What was it like it, the next few years after your husband passed away? What, what was that part of your life like? Um, I, I had no idea where I belonged first. Um, I came back to New York City after living in Italy on and off for about 10 years. And I never expected to come back to New York. And, and what I went away from was what saved me. It was my family. It was working. Um, it, it was a very tough time. It was a very difficult time. Uh, and I didn't really know where I belonged. That's well, basically it. The, 
One of the biggest factors in the chronic pain project is, is being in the victim role. And of course, you obviously were a very significant, in, clearly in a very legitimate victim role, and obviously pretty frustrated. What, how did you deal with the frustration factor around all these losses that you had? I kept busy. Kept busy? <laughs> I were kept busy, really. Get depressed or were you able to sort of stay past that? Um, no, it was dark. It was pretty, I mean, it was, it was dark. I was taking a lot of medication for pain. Um, it, where, it, it where was, was it very pain? difficult, but I, excuse me. So as far as pain, I, I do want to point that out. So uh, my, I'm a spinal cord surgeon. So a lot of people with spinal cord injuries do have a lot of muscle spasms afterwards. And that can right. be painful. As far as the pain, was it related to the spinal cord injury or was it some other type of chronic pain? No, so um, I had no spasms because I'm a lower motor neuron no. injury. Okay. But um, the the pain it's it's a it's a neurogenic pain, which is basically, from what I understand, it's your cord. Everything is all mixed up, and it's getting signals of pain. So it's a very, and um, in, they, they didn't believe that it, at a certain time when I was first injured, they believed like 20 to 30% of the population had it. Now they believe it's more. And it's really a pain that can't be treated. You can numb yourself with drugs and pass out, but right. it doesn't really numb that pain. And it was, it, it, it was, you know, now I'm going back to it. Pain ruled my life at that time. Okay. Everything was about the pain. Everything was about the pain. And what were some of your efforts to try to stop it besides the medications? Well, in the, I just, I realized that if I was busy and distracted, I, you know, what I really found was distraction. Okay. To be distracted, to be distracted from it, not to keep, you know, it took a while. And I just want to um, say one thing that, you know, I am a child of Holocaust survivors. Right. And in my whole life, I could never understand how my parents were able to go on in life after everything they went through. And right. that's something that really pushed me on also. Was, in what way? In what way? It, I, you know, I always, I always had this question of how it's possible to push on after tragedy. And then I looked at them and I understood how, and you just, my father told me, you just need to go forward. And that was it. So that's part of keeping it, just moving forward, just keep moving. That was the way to survive and to distract myself from pain. Keep going forward. That, that's a major aspect of the whole healing process with chronic pain. In, in the dark project, I call it moving forward with your pain. And the problem is if you're focused on fixing your pain, your tension's on the pain. And from a neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity standpoint, you actually reinforce those pain circuits. It makes it worse. And, so and there was no one like you to, oh, to explain that to me. Right, but you instinctively did, did keep moving forward. 
What were some of the things because that Because I had my, my family, my family history. That's what, you know, I finally, I finally um, found the answer to the puzzle of how they did it. And it was very simple. They just moved forward. They just kept moving forward. Oh, that's very, that's actually one of the essence, basic concepts of healing chronic pain is actually moving forward. And so you move away from the pain instead of trying to fix it, moving towards it, you're actually moving away from it. So, so how many years did you sort of stay in this dark place? It was a good like five or six years, I would think. Okay. Maybe a little more. Um, and then I started going to Miami. And um, I had, I started going to Miami and that's when I first um, was, um, was introduced to Shake a Leg, which is a, it is um, a water sports center for people of all abilities in Coconut Grove, Miami. Okay. And I, my surgeon actually took me there and that's where I learned how to sail. And what's it called again? Shake a leg. Shake Miami. a leg. Okay. Miami. Miami. Okay. And it's all about, was it focused on sailing or just on activities in general? It was, it was very much focused on sailing. Okay. Um, it has grown during the years and there, there's much more, but it's really a sailing center. And they also work with the city of Miami and inner city school children, taking them out and introducing them to the environment of the water. And so when I learned how to sail there, and then I started volunteering there and working with um, Miami city young students. Okay. And it gave me a purpose. And what did that do to your pain and mood at the time? When I was on a boat doing, I, I didn't feel my pain. Wow. You know, you, I was just completely distracted from it. Right. That's also a really critical concept because the bottom line is the brain really focuses on one thing at a time. When you're truly involved with your passion or giving back or interacting with other people, it makes a huge difference in your perception of pain. Because again, your brain can take in so many impulses at once. And when you're really moving forward, staying active, et cetera, why it makes a huge difference. I, I like to finish this part of the podcast up just one more time. And just because I, one thing, what happens to pain, one thing that happens to patients in pain is that they become labeled by their doctors, there's nothing wrong, their family doesn't believe them, and they're suffering from the pain. They become very anxious, very frustrated, very trapped. And they go into a legitimate victim role. I, I mean, the one difference that you have, which I'm not going to call it an advantage because it's not, is that obviously you could see what was wrong. The one step that my pain patients have that's one step worse than what you had, believe it or not, is, it, is the fact that nobody believes them. They get extremely right. frustrated with that. Obviously, it's something that was believable. Um, so they, they do have, you, it's a different type of suffering. And I guess my question is, I mean, you went, I'm sure you went through a phase of feeling sorry, sorry for yourself to some degree, but I do know moving forward is a huge issue moving forward. The other factor that's a major factor in healing chronic pain is social connections. And there's a, there's yeah. a book out of Chicago called Loneliness. The neuroscience of social isolation shows that emotional pain and physical pain 
are processed in a similar part of the brain. When people are socially isolated, they develop the exact same symptoms as chronic pain. It hurts. Incredible. Mm -hmm. So having your family because you, I mean, you did have tremendous family support, correct? I did, yes. And, and that's a big deal. Well, Deborah, thanks for your story. It's, it's a tough story. And to go through really incredibly optimistic, active, healthy life to being paralyzed and having your husband die. And what's impressive to me, I'm sure, I'm sure the rehab helped to a large degree, but somehow instinctively you figured out that moving forward is really critical. I, I knew your parents were Holocaust survivors. I hadn't heard that part of the story of trying to figure out what kept them moving. But I think your father's advice is remarkable, remarkable to just keep moving forward because that really is one of the basic parts of the solution. But we're going to talk about- One thing that he, he just, he also had said, don't ask why. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. I do want to talk about, I think we'll start the next podcast with that question. I do remember that conversation we had because that's a huge factor in people not being able to escape their pain. But Deborah, thank you very much. Again, I want to and just have you announce, just remind the audience one more time about your boat and your project just really briefly. Yes. Um, so the the boat is Impossible Dream. And the if you want to look us up, we're at theimpossibledream.org. Okay. And get in touch with us if you want to go sailing. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. That works. It's an exciting project, and we're going to talk about that in some detail in the next podcast. Anyway, Deborah, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you, uh, David and Deborah, and Deborah, especially for sharing your story, uh, how you've made it through this very uh, dark period and came to achieve your quote unquote impossible dream. And I want to remind our listeners to return next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.